0: The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales, a podcast about
1: forensic pathology-related topics. I'm Nicole Krum. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents who are going
0: into forensic pathology. And we haven't recorded for a month, so we might be a little bit rusty. Ugh. See? We haven't <laughs> recorded for a month, so we might be a little bit rusty. So apologies.
1: <laughs> yeah, the last time we did a double header, so
0: we're doing the same thing again. Woo! Just continue to keep being rusty. Yes. The best way. A little bit of tetanus. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So today we kind of wanted to throw it back and do like a real quote unquote hardcore forensic pathology topic, something that kind of dives into the details. And is a little bit disgusting, because that's really what forensic pathology is. Yes, so- this episode will definitely have an explicit <laughs> warning rating. <laughs> Which right now, let's do the CYA. We're going to talk about dismemberment today. Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't like semi-disgusting things, you should probably turn it off at this point. Although if you are one of those
1: hardcore crime junkie murderino murder nerd type people, you are going
0: to love this episode. Keep <laughs> So, to start off, what is dismemberment? So... Dismemberment is the cutting, tearing, pulling, wrenching, or otherwise removing the limbs of a living thing. So this can happen with capital punishment. So regicide, old political things, decapitation, a traumatic accident. So, you know, you're in an accident, your arm gets ripped off. That's dismemberment. It's often connected with murder, suicide, or cannibalism. And one thing that I thought was interesting, I don't know if I read this, but I thought of it, is in a sense, surgeons kind of dismember. Oh, yeah. If you have like a gangrenous limb or something, or like a vascular issue, there is medical dismemberment as well. So we often associate it with a murder, as we'll talk about, but dismemberment is also with these other things.
1: Yeah, we'll go into this a little bit more later, but the two ones that I came across were post-mortem dismemberment, which is the one that I always think of, yes. and then anatomical dissociation of body parts, yes, which includes the major trauma and surgical
0: removal of limbs. Yes, exactly. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I want to define early on is dismemberment versus mutilation, because there are various things that I read that kind of use them interchangeably, but there were a few other things that... Made them very distinct, which I think makes more sense. So dismemberment is the entire removal by any means of a large section of the body of a living thing or a dead person. Specifically, head, arms, hands, torso, pelvic area, legs, or feet. Versus mutilation is the removal or irreparable disfigurement by any means of some similar portion of one of those larger sections of a living body or dead person. So Castration, evisceration, flaying. So they kind of made the distinction of a whole hand would be dismemberment uh-huh. versus a finger would be mutilation. Oh, interesting. The head would be dismemberment, decapitation, but like the nose would be mutilation. Okay. And the other one was the torso would be dismemberment, but removing a breast would be mutilation. Ah. So kind of dismemberment is the larger chunks and mutilation would be a smaller chunk. Okay. And I thought that that was kind of a- <laughs> sorry oh, <it's laughs> just like when you're thinking
1: about cat food you got the large chunks
0: and the got your nose no give
1: it back <laughs> Here you go thank you
0: <laughs> mute later so now we're going to do a brief trip back in time to so some of the historical things associated with dismemberment
1: and the only thing i had was this fun fact that i found which was in the middle ages Particularly grave crimes were punished with death, but an offender was also sentenced to additional punishment, which was dismemberment, and they called it truncation membrorum. Membrorum. I know, yes. It sounds like another one of those spells, like Mm -hmm. we talked about in a different episode, autopsia cadaverum, or whatever, (laughs) with the remains being scattered to the four winds. Mm. So don't commit crimes in the Middle Ages?
0: Yep. Yep. Or now, or ever. (laughs) Thanks. The history of this was kind of fun because when I think of historical dismemberment, the first thing I think of is like, you know, strapped to the four horses that like, you know, spread your body in four ways. I would
1: just like to emphasize that you said fun in terms of thinking about
0: dismemberment. (laughs) We've already discussed that forensic pathologists are a little messed up in the head. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) But like, history is cool, I guess, is a lot of it for me. Yes. Um, And... When you really kind of go back to the older stuff, you know, sacrifices, ritual, mythology, art is really, there's a lot of dismemberment associated with all this that I'll kind of go into. And we think of it as homicide, but even, like, like there's some medicine things with it that we talked about. So, like, you know, some of the, you know, mythos, right? Like, you can have a lucky foot of an albino person, mm. right? And, yes. like, that's dismemberment, but it's for a, quote-unquote, medicine-slash- ritual type of thing okay yeah i'm gonna go into two different mythologies because i think mythology is just the coolest the first one i'm gonna go into is egypt so we're gonna start off with i guess technically this would be mutilation by my earlier definition okay but oh i guess no i lied this is just straight up dismemberment so back in egypt osiris who is known as the dismembered one was a judicious pharaoh but he was murdered and cut into 14 pieces by his brother set oh many pieces 14 pieces. It's a lot of work. The goddess Isis and Nephthys, who are his sister and sister-in-law, found all the parts and reassembled him as the first mummy. Hmm. Missing only the penis, which had been eaten by a fish. Ah, not important. It's fine. Isis then crafted a penis for the resurrection of Osiris and conceived the rightful heir Horus out of this crafting, who after several battles then defeated Set, who's the one that dismembered his father, yep, yep. and restored harmony to the land. So what I'm hearing is Horus is half zombie. Horus. Horus is half zombie, yes. Okay. And Osiris, after he was made whole again, became ruler of the House of the Dead, which makes sense, because he was brought back to life as the mummy and resurrected as the first mummy. That does make sense.
1: I always thought Anubis was the god of the dead.
0: House of the Dead. The ruler of the House of the Dead. So he's not a god, but he's oh. the ruler of the House of the Dead. Oh. Mm, yeah. Okay.
1: Okay.
0: and he's also known as the dismembered one Hmm. and then a lot of mythologies are similar to this one we're going to mention the north norse mythology there's an androgynous frost giant named ymir y-m-i-r i'm assuming it's ymir i'm probably wrong (laughs) ymir was name of my firstborn (laughs) child ymir was killed by the gods and then torn apart they turned his body into the earth his blood into the seas his bones into the mountain his teeth and jaw into rocks and stone, and his skull into the sky. And there's actually a lot of mythologies that are around this, like being dismembered and your parts are turned into the universe or earth. Yeah. So there's Norse, but also there's a Babylonian, a Chinese, an Indian, an Aztec mythos around this same idea of essentially being dismembered and then your bits are turned into creation. Which I thought was interesting. That is
1: really interesting. I wonder... Yeah, I wonder why so many cultures had that as their like creation world creation story? story. Yeah,
0: I think it's a lot of you know, man or the body is turned into our world. Kind of going back to that, yeah. like the world is us, like because it's all humans focused, right? So how is it human focused? How is the world made from us? So <laughs> not disagreeing with you. Um, and <laughs> so those are kind of the more interesting like parts of it, and then I gotta kind of go into some of, most of the history of dismemberment is torture and judicial stuff.
1: (laughs) I can't imagine (laughs) why.
0: So, in Southeastern Asia, apparently they had um, capital punishment execution by trained elephants where they would strap sharp blades to elephants feet and then dismember the person from the elephant going around and like stepping on him and dismembering him with blades
1: what yep the blades seem unnecessary the one for trauma <laughs> is
0: just gonna smush you apart anyway but if you strap blades to their feet just like that chicken that they strap <laughs> yes! the blade to the feet and the gun kills himself <laughs> so it's not just old times now too history repeats itself is what they say <laughs> The Holy Roman Empire quartering is very well known, but yes, apparently, this I've heard of. What they did, which I didn't realize, was they cut and hacked apart the entire body into four pieces, and thus punished unto death. And such four parts are to be hanged on stakes publicly on four common fairs. So the whole point is to kill them, mm-hmm. but then make it seen for everybody else, so yeah. everybody knows. But importantly, this is cutting and not ripping. So this isn't the four horses thing.
1: Oh, this was
0: cutting. Okay. In Turkey, they had a distinct one where they would tie the waist of a man with ropes and constrict it and constrict it and constrict it until it's really tiny, and then quickly bisect the trunk where the ropes were constricted. So it's a form of dismembering. It's not like what we typically think of, yeah. but like just cutting in two. Bisecting,
1: this, if you will. Bisecting, <laughs> if you will.
0: Well, this one is the most disgusting to me. So in Persia, they have this thing called shakkeh, S-H-E-K-K-E-H where people were hung up by their heels with their head down. And then the executioner would hack away with a sword from, like, through the center of your body, (gasps) through to your head. No! And then the two severed halves were suspended on a camel and paraded through the streets. What? And when it was done in a merciful manner, they would cut off the head first. But usually they wouldn't. In Korea, I just had that it's capital punishment for high treason. In China, they had this thing called the Five Pains in the Qin Dynasty, and then in the Tang Dynasty, they had truncation of the body at the waist by means of a fodder knife, which I'm going to ask people to Google what a fodder knife is. I have this for Nicole. It kind of looks like this old school farming tool, huh. but that's what they would hack away with.
1: Oh, interesting. It's kind
0: of like, this, kind of like a machete with a bent handle, like... Like blade to handle is at a 90 degree angle.
1: Yeah, if you're showing me that at a distance,
0: I wouldn't even be sure it's a blade. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's creepy. But they would cut them in half with that. Oh, in Egypt, for fallen enemies, they would cut off the hands or penises and present them to pharaohs. And in one... Gifts I do not want. Oh, get ready. In one battle over Libya, the pharaoh Merneptah... Returned with more than 13,000 penises. What? Of the enemy dead. What? 13,000 penises. What?
1: Where was he keeping them? I
0: do not want to know that.
1: (laughs) I'm just imagining like a guy with a trench coat and he (laughs) opens it and it's just like 13,000 penises.
0: (laughs) Biggest trench coat ever. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then there was a lot of tearing apart and horses were common. Vehicles so tying to four vehicles four ships I saw ships? for like mariners they would like shackle them and then four ships and then have them that but it would take a lot seems longer like way more work. Yeah, well it also takes longer so it's like a more tortuous death. so like imagine like very slowly sailing away and getting totter and totter <sighs> I don't want to thanks. Nope. There was this one that did it via two trees, so like these young bendy trees, you like bend down and attach with two shackles, and then you let them go and they spring back up and your body splits in two. Did pe- well,
1: how much time did people have on their hands that they were just thinking about all these I mean, they these didn't have
0: Netflix, they didn't have Amazon Prime, they didn't have a Kindle. They had a lot of time. They didn't do it that much back then.
1: I mean, 2020 has been rough, but this makes me appreciate 2020. <laughs>
0: That's uh... <laughs> i don't know if i agree with that one <laughs> and then the last one that well, i had let me just tie you to four ships then <laughs> debatable <laughs> and then the last one i have is via stones. so like they would take somebody on a high wall and attach like their head to one stone and their feet to another stone and then drop the stones <gasps> on the sides of the wall so like the wall would cut yeah. you oh no yeah. what Yeah. oh my god. No, there was some crazy medieval torture for like various forms of this. It's it's every every bit I read I was just like, "Huh." <laughs> um, but to today, it's really not used for execution or torture anymore, except in Sharia law, amputation is still sometimes carried out. Okay. But beyond that, I mean, there are some we'll talk about some like gang violence stuff that it might be used for, but Primarily, it's not like this was pretty well known as capital punishment in some major societies, and that is not particularly used anymore. It's just in some of these more fringy groups. Fringy? That might not be the right word, but you all know what I mean. Yeah. Good. Okay. Good. So on that great note.
1: Uh, we're going to move into some epidemiology, which will be pretty <laughs> short because these things are actually pretty rare. Yep. So which is great after yeah, all the stuff we just described. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I had decapitation and dismemberment as kind of separate things, biostats-wise. Okay. So decapitation of bodies, which is just the removal of the head, as we mentioned before, is not uncommon in situations of armed conflict when individuals are exposed to explosive devices. Oh, okay. So like dismemberment in that sense is still pretty common. Okay. But decapitation and dismemberment for that matter in civilian settings is a pretty rare event. Yep. So in one study in Australia... Uh, About 0.1% of forensic autopsies from 1986 to 2002 had decapitation as part of the process. Oh, okay.
0: 0.1%. I mean, when I think of all the cases I've done, which is, you know, a couple hundred, like, there's been zero.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting because in this case, so the most commonly associated decapitations were with suicide.
0: Oh, because of... Because,
1: yeah, so... There was a strong male predominance in cases of suicidal decapitation, and that's because they would just put their neck on a train track and the train would run over and cause decapitation. If you're feeling suicidal, there are options
0: for help. (laughs) Don't put your neck on the train track. We've listed the number in one of our prior episodes. And
1: I'll list it again. Yeah. (laughs) But don't lay your neck on the train track. So in their study, they found that it was most commonly associated with suicide and less often with motor vehicle crashes. Mm, Okay. But the one instance of decapitation I've seen was a motor vehicle crash. Okay. The guy didn't have his seatbelt on and he went through the windshield. Okay. His head ended up over there, smooshed brain. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And then in terms of dismemberment, oh, I only found one like stat. So this was from the Konya province of Turkey. Ooh. And they found that only seven, so 0.2% out of... Almost 4,000 death examinations and autopsies carried out between 2000 and 2007 involved cases of dismembered bodies. Four of them were suicides involving the victims jumping onto railroad tracks in front mm-hmm. of moving trains. And then two of them were road traffic accidents. And only one dismemberment event occurred as a result of homicide. Okay. Yeah. So pretty rare as an event in a homicide, which
0: is. What I always think of. (laughs) Yeah, which is what they say is the most common type of dismemberment. So there are like, everybody defines the subtypes of this differently. Yes. One that I saw had two, one had three, one had five. So we're going to just kind of list as granular as we can with this. Yeah. So
1: to start off with, there is
0: defensive
1: mutilation. Slash dismemberment. Slash dismemberment, which is with the aim of disposing the body.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so the goal with this is to clear the scene of the crime, make it easier to transport the body, particularly over long distances and or during times of the day when possible witnesses could be about. Mm -hmm. So you're trying not to raise suspicion. Or like
0: carrying. Like, I can't carry a full body, but I can carry a head.
1: (laughs) (laughs) good to know you're welcome (laughs) murder you could carry a whole body it depends on the size of the body true it does depend on the size of the body you are the strong don't discredit yourself (gasps) (laughs) Um, also for defensive purposes hiding personal biologic traces Mm. So anything that could help identify the murderer. So, for example, if you got in a fight with the victim beforehand and you think they may have stuff under their nails, then you might dismember them so that you could try to hide their hands better than like the rest of their body.
0: Or to keep their ID secret, so take off the head and the hands. Exactly. So. That's
1: the fourth part Sorry. of <laughs> defensive <laughs> mutilation slash dismemberment. Well yeah. So hiding the identity of the victim. So you make the recognition of the victim a lot more difficult if you put the body parts in different places, yes. if you... Like remove portions of the skin that have identifying marks, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Tattoos. Tattoos. Oh no, I have so many. Don't really no. <laughs> Which is mutilation, not just Exactly. Well, yes. Could be a combo. Next is aggressive mutilation or dismemberment. So this generally occurs when resentment or hate leads the aggressor to disfigure and dis- or dismember the body. So this is more like acts of rage when you do the overkill. Yeah. Stuff.
0: I like this. Th- I like to think of this one as overkill. So you're so mad that you can't stop yourself and all of a sudden they don't have arms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. Oh gosh.
1: That's what anger management's <laughs> for. Or kickboxing. That's what I do. <laughs> Oh, um, and, and <laughs> there's offensive mutilation, which was sometimes lumped in with aggressive yeah. mutilation or dismemberment. I thought but, this was weird. Like, it's, yeah,
0: there's definitely a lot of crossover definitions of all of these things. Yeah, I thought it made more sense to separate
1: this one out from yes. aggressive though. Agreed. So, offensive mutilation or dismemberment is due to a desire to kill and/or perform sexual acts on an inanimate body. So this is usually part of something called necrosadistic murders. That sounds
0: about right. Yep.
1: In such cases, the mutilation or dismemberment may begin on a live person and continue even after death. Mm, yep. So, lovely. The next type I have is necromaniac mutilation or dismemberment, which is the aim of keeping a trophy or for a fetish. So, you know, instead of
0: taking a blood smear like Dexter, they decide that they need a whole hand yeah. or a head. I saw that this was also kind of going into what you said before. It's because, like, collecting parts of a buried corpse for their own sexual pleasure, Mm. along with trophies. So I kind of had both of them grouped in to necromaniac mutilations. There's some overlap between offensive and necromaniac. And necromaniac is definitely, like, homicide isn't necessary. They don't need to be necessarily (sighs) dead for this one. Because, like, if you take a trophy, a symbol, a fetish, cannibalism, like, they don't necessarily need to be dead. Yeah. But... Cannibalism is also linked into this one. And then the other two, well, the other category that I saw was communication dismemberment. And so this is transmitting meaning through groups. So like gangs, so indicating a threat. So like, I'm going to cut off his hand unless you do this, and then you send him a hand. You've dismembered them, they're still alive, but it's communication dismemberment because you're sending a message through the act of dismemberment. Or put a horse head in their bed. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Communication. Communication (laughs) dismemberment. And then other stuff that I guess some of it might fit into Necromaniac, but sacrifice, ritual... Mm-hmm. And then also medicine isn't distinctly in one of these categories, but, okay. you know, amputating a leg for gangrene. I wouldn't say falls into any of these categories by any sense, but it is a type of dismemberment, is the medical dismemberment.
1: Yes. I guess for me, that was, this is all post-mortem type dismemberment. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. And then anatomical dissociation of body parts is what they lumped, like major trauma. So motor vehicle accident leading to decapitation or whatever. Um, and then surgical removal of limbs.
0: Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense.
1: At least the source I saw separated them out that way. Okay.
0: Um, and then there's a whole bunch of ways that you can group any of these. So, um, there's two kind of general patterns of dismemberment. So one of them is localized. So the example of that is, as Nicole said, with ID, it falls under, you know, defensive, but removing the head and the hands for ID purposes is localized. Like you're going after a specific thing. First, generalize is when, you know, you're taking off all the arms and the limbs and the heads, or, you know, you're taking your, an arm and you're hacking it into multiple pieces, mm. which I, which I didn't see like the, the soft tissue But I got to go to Chico to retrieve the bones of a case of somebody who had been dismembered. Mm. And they, this, they went crazy. So there was, arms and legs were cut off. But then like, the long bones were chopped into multiple pieces. The tiny bones of their fingers were chopped into multiple pieces. Oh my gosh. Like, they just kind of fragmented it as much as humanly possible. Apparently the scene, like, that they found way later was covered. Like, they tried to clean it, but it was like, they found like, Traces of blood everywhere. Like it was... It was... I'll go into it a little bit more with some of the other stuff we have to talk about. But it was... It was a crazy case. It was really cool to see the forensic anthropologist um, exam of this. Because as we'll go into... There's a little bit that we can do as forensic pathologists. But a lot of it is the forensic anthropologist domain. Yeah. And then the other kind of grouping of this is modes of dismemberment. So... There are three main groups. One is disarticulation around the joints. So that's, you know, separating the um, upper arm from the lower arm at the elbow by, you know, cutting into the soft tissues and just kind of like pulling the bones apart with that rather than directly cutting through the bones. So usually this is done with smaller, more decisive cuts so you know what they call short light weapons so like knives okay where you're cutting and you're making like all right i'm going to cut here so i can go between these these joints and this is often associated with people that have some kind of expertise in this mm-hmm. so it's often like well are they a surgeon or are they a butcher like how do they know how to do this because it's thought of as kind of being a little bit cleaner overall yeah and more meticulous and then the other two groups are transecting through bone. One of them is via chopping, and one of them is via sawing. So chopping is what they call long, heavy weapons. So that's like a machete or something like that. And this is where you often get chop marks in the bones that are like really close to each other and overlapping because they're taking multiple hacks ah. at something like that. Versus transection of bone via sawing is kind of a you know more broad incision where you can see the saw mark coming through. And all of these, I'm not going to go into crazy detail with it, but forensic anthropologists can look at the bones and see the marks in the bones and kind of backtrack and be like, oh, well, we think this is from a knife or this is probably from more of a machete or an axe, or this is definitely a reciprocating saw. And so they can help determine what weapons are used. Yeah. And then there was a review from New York City that showed about 16% of dismemberments were from disarticulation only. About 60% used some form of transection of the bone, and about 25% showed both. So at the quarter time, it's both. About 15%, it's only disarticulation. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, which brings us to
1: how to dismember a body in more detail. Anyway, so... (laughs) so, Start (laughs) taking notes. Yeah, so the usual practices for dismembering a body, like one of the main things is that... To investigate a dismemberment, you need to consider how victims of homicide are generally dismembered, which you went yes. through those three different patterns or modes very nicely. And Thank the you. <laughs> the one review article, one of the review articles that I read, um, they went over these three different cases, and they said only one of the cases that they had investigated was that disarticulation method, mm-hmm. and it was this wife who killed her husband, and she was the daughter of a butcher, so oh, she. Yep had made yep. the cuts at the joint capsule to reduce the effort to a minimum mm-hmm. of, like, pulling the body apart.
0: And when forensic anthropologists take a body that they're going to have to look at the bones for and they have to get rid of the soft tissue, they disarticulate this way. So yep. they cut down into joint space and then take it apart that way rather than sawing through the bones because they obviously want to look at the bones. Yep. So. Yep. so in that vein, the body is commonly
1: dismembered into six pieces. Six. Six. So removing the head and neck at approximately the level of the fourth or fifth cervical vertebrae. So those are the bones of the spine in your neck. Piece one. Region. And then piece two, both arms. Piece two and three. Two and three, you're right. Both arms through the proximal third of the humerus, which is your upper arm bone. So kind of like closer to your shoulder than your elbow. Yeah. Then both legs. Parts four and five. Through the upper part of the shaft of the femur, which is your thigh bone. And leaving the torso and pelvis as a single piece. Yes. And then in addition to this, the chest and abdomen may be opened and eviscerated. So Mm -hmm. taking all of the organs out. And then skin, soft tissue, and muscle may also be removed in various shapes to attempt to remove things like tattoos, digits, genitalia, and breasts. Yes. All to hinder identification or to take trophies. Yes. Or for mutilation. Yes. Because you suck. (laughs) Yep. yep 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 so hand saws are the usual instrument in cases of homicidal dismemberment mm-hmm. although this one paper that i was reading said the most efficient instrument that this forensic pathologist found are garden long arm ratchet anvil loppers which oh, are just yeah, yeah. the things no, that, that we use that.
0: which are what we use over the ribcage yes exactly so you know we are doing things efficiently so i guess this is a good point to say it we had i'm currently with the. A- medical examiner which is awesome we had a case where there was essentially a mummified body that we don't have an id on so one of the ways that they can get an id is they can take the hands and send them off to one of the labs and they can like kind of rehydrate the skin and try to get um fingerprints which is really cool but in order to do that you have to cut off the hands Mm. so i use the rib cutters the the loppers. And I got to cut off two hands. <gasps> I think it was a day before my birthday, so it was like my birthday Happy present. Birthday. Exactly. Oh my god! So gosh. I got to I got to dismember somebody with with hoppers. Oh
1: yeah. And then they so sent them to be more worried. Is that?
0: Well, it was easy because they were mummified. <laughs> like soft tissue is the hard part. I didn't have to worry about the soft tissue. <laughs> okay, it was way more difficult. Yeah, yeah. And they were also not screaming at me because they were mummified. <laughs> True. But,
1: which, you know, brings us to the final point of what I wanted to talk about in this section was that the skin is often the hardest tissue yes. to cut. So, uh, <laughs> segue. so one of the basic errors that a lot of people who are dismembering a body make is that they try to just cut through everything all at once instead of like cutting through the skin first and then getting
0: down to the bone and using the loppers for the bone.
1: Exactly. So the teeth of a blade often snag in the flesh. And so cuts can contain evidence like fabric from clothes or the work surface that was used to dismember the body. So it's really important for us when we're examining the bodies, which we'll get into later to like look at all of that. Oh, and because operators are likely to be unskilled, blades may be blunt or may break. Yes. Yes. And so broken blades should also be looked for when we encounter dismembered remains. Yes.
0: So I'm going to quickly go into some things on like tools and tool mark terminology and that kind of thing. Again, this is all in the purview of pretty much the forensic anthropologists who know way more about this, but I kind of wanted to touch on it briefly. So the tool is, you know, the implement that used to affect an action. So in this case, usually some kind of sharp force tool. So, things we think of are knives, saws, cleavers, axes. But other things that can cause dismemberment are wood chippers, mm. guillotines, boat propellers. I always think of wood chippers as just straight up pulverizing. But it's, I mean, if you put an arm in slowly, it's Yeah, I guess so. Manual things, so cutting, chopping. Oh, and then there's a breakdown of manual versus powered. So, manual will be cutting, chopping, or hacking. And then power to be like a reciprocating or circular saw. Mm -hmm. That's another way to break down your tools. And then the other one that I mentioned before is the short life light versus the long heavy. So short light is knives and long heavy would be like a machete or an axe. So things that, you know, different amount of force needed for different weapons. Next time I'm in the kitchen, I'm going to ask for you to pass me the short light. You should. (laughs) It's kind of like an Indiana Jones. (laughs) 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 The thing that forensic anthropologists are great at is taking these tool marks and looking at the unique characteristics from the tool marks and being able to trace that back to the tool. So you can often determine the profile of the blade. Is it beveled? Is it serrated? Or is it smooth? You can look at what's called the kerf and the kerf is the cut that's made by the tool. So you can look at the wall, so the sides of it. You can look at the floor of it. So is it like, is it like V-shaped or is it U-shaped? Uh. And so you can determine from that what the tool might be. You can look at blade skip. So is it like, if it's a reciprocating tool, right, and you're bringing down, say, um, a chainsaw, right, it might like jump a couple times before mm. you get it through. So something like that scalloping on the wound. Angle, you can sometimes tell, like if it comes in, and you see like the the curled part coming up it came in from a different angle okay long story short you can use these marks that are left on the bones or other things to track back and see what blade could be compatible with that mark overall what the summary from from this fantastic book called criminal dismemberment which is a book i would love to say that somebody made the book criminal dismemberment <laughs> You can tell it's the... a textbook, not a manual for killers. Yes, it is actually a textbook. <laughs> textbook
1: for forensic pathology
0: people. Written for uh, it was for for, in the for UK or other scene investigators. So it was written in the UK.
1: Yeah, because that guy does a lot of post-mortem imaging studies. Yep. Hmm. Ah, so
0: cool. So you can tell the type or class of implement. So saw, knife. You can tell the dynamics associated with the implement. So is it powered or is it handheld? Variation associated with the operator. So sometimes handedness, confidence, experience or force. If it's a chopping thing you need a lot of force to get through bone, obviously. Variation in the substrate, so is it skin or bone that they're cutting through? The fixed nature of the substrate, so is like is it a bone that's secured down or is it is the bone maybe moving as they're trying to cut it? The potential for additional damage to the cutting surface, so not only is it the bone but what underneath it might be damaged and you can look at everything around it. Yep. And then the last one, I didn't fully understand, but risk of additional characteristic or damage to existing striae caused due to accidental or tamphonic damage. What? Yep. Yep. I'll just leave that there. Somebody can email us and explain what that means. Essentially, tool marks are great and they help us determine what's going on. But that means when we're doing our exam, as we're going to go into next... We need to make sure that we preserve these things so the forensic anthropologists can get a really good look at them yes yep which
1: brings us to kind of the death investigation of a dismembered body so or parts of a, a body, body. yeah <laughs> so as one might guess there are a lot of issues that come up when dealing with these types of cases so there's difficulty in identifying the victim it might be hard to establish a cause of death because the lesions produced during dismemberment may cover or be confused with those that cause the death. Mm-hmm. And then if the body has been moved from the scene of a crime, important clues may be missing. So, scene, which is always super important, but is even more important in maybe these types of cases. So, dismembering a body, as one might imagine, will produce a lot of contamination of a scene. Mm-hmm. and. The perpetrator, depending on the methods that they use and how long it's been since the death happened. So, body fluids can seep into all sorts of surfaces, sinks might contain cellular material. And they mentioned that those should be examined closely to see if there are internal organ structures rather than just looking for skin or hair, which can get trapped naturally through grooming. And then, as Jordan mentioned, tool marks can be found on a variety of surfaces depending on what the person put the body on in order to dismember them. Since one of the primary purposes of body dismemberment might be to aid removal of the body from the scene then the remains may be kind of far from the scene of dismemberment, which may also be different from the scene of killing, maybe. And then also the disposal sites can be multiple. So the remains can be spread over large geographical areas.
0: And So um, that's like in British Columbia and Vancouver. They got a lot of like just feet washing up on shore. Oh yeah, yeah. Like they just had single feet. And they still don't know exactly where they all came from. But like that's a dismemberment case where you just have this foot. In like, the oh, shoe. Okay. Yeah. Great. Got another one. Add it to the pile of feet. Yep. <laughs> pile <laughs> of feet. Next to the pile of penises. <laughs> Thirteen thousand.
1: <000. laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. So the pathologist role at the scene is often the need to determine whether or not the an autopsy needs to happen. So human versus non human essentially. And then also they should participate in the formulation of a strategy for the retrieval, packaging, transportation, and preservation of evidence with all of the dismembered parts that are
0: found. Yes, exactly. And of course, a lot of the times, if you just find one body part, like a foot, you need to start a missing persons investigation mm-hmm. for the rest of the body. Yeah. You know, maybe the, it's just just, it is just a foot and the rest of them might still be alive somewhere um, or find the rest of the body. It's <laughs> so like a lot of options here. <laughs> And then the autopsy itself. So, I'm gonna go over this briefly just because it's really not that different than any other autopsy that we would do. It often starts with imaging. So, are you gonna just get an x ray or are you can do a post mortem CT if you have the imaging modality available? You know, maybe you do an x-ray of a partially amputated leg and you see a little bit of a blade left in there. So like whatever they use to try to dismember the person, you have some evidence left behind and you can see that really well on x-ray or CT, or you can identify a lot of stuff that way. So that is one of the more important things that you can do at the beginning. The autopsy itself starts a lot like the autopsy on a person. So one of the first things you look at, look at is the wrappings. Mm-hmm. So for a whole human, that would be clothes, right? But for a leg, it might be, you know, the shower curtain that it's wrapped in. So unwrap that, see if there's any other evidence left within the wrapping, give that to property or to the, or to the um, crime lab to evaluate. Trace evidence. So collect swabs, collect, if you have a hand, under the fingernails, collect the fingernail itself, other embedded things like blade tips, Hair, all of the little tiny things. And then you do, you know, the rest of it is normal autopsy. So you start with an external and you look at, you know, congenital or dysmorphic features, tattoos, piercing, prostheses, evidence of natural disease, scars, IV drug use. Is there any medical treatment? Do they have an IV sticking out of this arm? Historical or animortem injuries, and then post mortem changes. So, like, you know, was it in the water and is there little fish eating marks? <laughs> They're called, right? Fish eating marks? Yes, that's the scientific term. <laughs> nibble, nibble, fishy, fishy. <laughs> fish eating.
1: Fish nibbles. Okay, definitely gonna use that when I'm testifying in court someday. Oh my
0: god. If there is soft tissue, you know, there's a lot we can do in soft tissue. So you can collect, if you have, you know, a leg, like, Surprisingly, you can get a lot of blood in your leg. So you can maybe, if you have like the whole lower leg, you might be able to collect blood from that. You can also use muscle or bone. And you can either do that to run toxicology or other testing to find out something about the pre-mortem state. You can also do histology. So look under the microscope at a wound. You might be able to date the wound. Was it immediate? Is it like a week old? You know, were they tortured first? Do you see signs of bindings or restraints? Can you date when that happened? So there is a lot that we can do on the soft tissue before we hand the bones over to
1: anthropology. Yeah. So as Jordan hinted at, you can gain a ton of information, even from a single body part. And as we've mentioned before, one of the things that you need to do is try to identify the victim So Jordan mentioned fingernails for trace evidence of the perpetrator, but you can also use nails as a good source of self-DNA to try to identify somebody. If you have a whole hand or a whole arm with the hand attached, you can do finger and palm prints to try to aid in identification. Jordan also mentioned on the external exam, we do all of the normal things. So this includes looking for natural skin lesions, tattoo scars, or other things that can also help in identification.
0: If you don't have fingernails, because fish nibbles, but you have the hand, people always think of getting DNA from like the long bones is really good, but actually the small bones of your hand are the best for DNA. Hmm. It's not your long bones. So there's a lot of cool places. One of them is definitely fingernail, but there's just a lot of good sources that you can get for that. So, you know, if you need to, you can really get it from essentially anything, but some are just better than others. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then one of the most important things that we do when we're doing an examination of a dismembered body is to look at the area of dismemberment. So Mm -hmm. examining the skin, soft tissue, muscle and bone and any dismemberment related injury needs to be recorded and photographed. Photos, photos, photos. Always photos.
0: All the photos. Yes.
1: And then in order to examine the bone better, we need to remove the tissue around the bone, but we need to be super careful not to create our own tool marks because that can cover up what actually happened. And then we try to cut off the end, the, the dismembered end, and... There are various ways to kind of clean it to get a better visual examination of the bone, but
0: then the forensic anthropologists pretty much do all of the, like, tool examination. And the other way is, besides, like, cutting off the bone end, you can just give them the whole thing. Yeah. Which is what we did for the, the one case that I had. Essentially, it was this body was found in, I think it was, like, four different large trash bags, and... By this, by the point that it was seen by the medical examiner, it was all mush. So, like, the soft tissue was not helpful. <laughs> so, essentially, it was just all given to the forensic anthropologists up in Chico. And they... Merry Christmas. But really, like, they just gave them all to their little, like... And there's a lot of argument about, like, what's the best way to remove the soft tissue. Yeah. Like, some people like to do it manually. Some people think water is better. Some people think hot water is better. Some people think enzymes are better some people think insects are the best way i was gonna say aren't those bugs but other no no no, enzymatic's different but then some people think that insects are bad because they leave marks but other people think they don't leave marks so there's kind of like this whole little (laughs) argument within the field itself but chico uses insects as long as you know there are certain things we talked about this before there are certain drugs that might be in the system that the bugs don't want to eat. Yeah. And there are certain drugs that you have that make the bugs eat it faster, like Coke, and certain things that make e- them eat it slower, like opioids. So just like on people, bugs react to different drugs similarly. Yeah. In Chico, anyway, this one, they, like, uh, they took the four boxes, they got rid of all the soft tissue, and then they reassembled, essentially, this whole skeleton. And they were able to, you know... Again, this was not a part of this is a whole body. And they were able to take these bones and tell us that there was a minimum of three different implements used. Mm. So there was one hacking instrument, and I think there were two different reciprocal instruments of different sizes. So I think they thought that one was like a chainsaw and one was a circ saw. And this person used three different implements to cut up this person hmm. into. And this is the one that did like. The t- even the tiny bones of the hands they cut in half yeah did you just kind of curious did you learn more about that story like was it an aggressive
1: dismemberment oh or this is-
0: was a this was a just dis- this was defensive ah. this was a distinctly like it was some you know one guy was sleeping with another guy's wife and he got understandably like not understandably killed him because he was sleeping with his wife and then he took him out to his back shed and like chopped them into as many pieces as he possibly could and then put them in four different boxes and put it on top of a refrigerator in a chinese food warehouse so it already kind of smelled like chinese food warehouse and but somebody were like it smelled worse yeah and they found the body well the bits of the body i took that down and then this guy fled to cambodia Right when he knew that they found the boxes. Right. And Cambodia doesn't have an extradition treaty. Ah.
1: So this guy has still
0: not been caught. Yeah. But, yeah,
1: That just, why would
0: you go through all of that work to hide it in such a public place? Well, I think he thought that because it was, one, I don't think he was keeping it there forever. Two, I think he owned this Chinese food warehouse. Yeah. So, like, he was going to come and get take it. But, like... It apparently was, like, right by one of the bridges. It's like, just throw it into the bay. Yeah. It's uh, as... Probably shouldn't be broadcasting this, but all the medical examiners are always, like, just throw it into the bay. (laughs) It's going to take care of it. And not all. Like, we had a floater earlier this week that we were working up. But, like, yeah.
1: Well, one of the things when I was researching this episode, and also this came up when I was camping recently, people were like asking me, so does that mean if you're going into forensic pathology, you know the best way to dispose of a body? Murder. Murder. (laughs) Uh, And so when I was reading up on this, I was like, you know, just reading about this makes me wonder how many murderers have not been caught like how many people have just hidden the body oh. well enough that it's never been found because they say a that this dismemberment after homicide is rare
0: but is it actually rare or do we just not know about it because we never find the bodies that's a good question that's a creepy question yeah i mean there are a lot of missing persons right there's a lot of missing persons yeah you know there's a lot of random dismemberment
1: you never know what's in the foundation of your house
0: it's true <laughs> have you seen unforgotten yet on amazon prime it's a british show no i haven't oh my god it's so good you should definitely watch it okay it's on the list story time yeah
1: we haven't had stories in a while have we, we? haven't had
0: stories in a while okay. that's also i think why i wanted to do this because we haven't done like this kind of thing in a while
1: yeah that makes sense okay so my story is the soap maker of correggio
0: where's correggio it's in italy thank you you're welcome cool can you do it all with an Italian accent? Oh, that would be so offensive. <laughs> that's <laughs> fair.
1: Also, according to 23andMe, I am not at all Italian, so.
0: I'm not either.
1: Yeah, I would have to do it in a French or British or German accent. Leonardo Cinciulli. <laughs> yes. No, that's everything I That's wine. all I got. Okay. I'll take it. I'll so, take it. Leonardo Cinciulli was born on April 18th, 1894. Okay. So, this is a back in the day story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mine is modern day, so. Okay, balance. Uh, born on April 18th, 1894, in the southern Italian town of Montella. Okay. So she apparently had a pretty rough childhood and she attempted suicide twice before she became an adult, hmm. but she went on to survive and marry a registry clerk okay. named Raffaele Ponsardi. Thank you. In 1917. However, her mom supposedly cursed her because she disapproved of the marriage. Seems seems reasonable. Right. Yep. So, over the course of her marriage, she got pregnant 17 times. Wow! Of those 17 times, three of the pregnancies were lost due to miscarriages, and ten of the children died in their youth.
0: Oh, that's so sad. Yeah,
1: so only four of her children ended up surviving. Imagine
0: giving birth 14 times. No, thank you. And having
1: four of them survive? Yeah. And then in
0: 1927,
1: she was imprisoned for fraud. And upon her release, she and her family moved to Lacedonia, which was not too far from her childhood home. But then on July 23rd, 1930, the Arpinia earthquake struck, which was Mm -hmm. one of the most destructive earthquakes in Italian history. So it sounds like 2020 so far. Right. Yeah. Her life was 2020. (laughs) Um, Chinchuli was one of the thousands who lost their homes in that disaster. So between her suicide attempts, her mother's curse, her miscarriages, and the earthquake, Leonardo realized that her life, quote unquote, to to put it bluntly, sucked. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So she went to see a fortune teller for some insight. And this actually turned out to be less than helpful because the fortune teller said, in your right hand, I see prison. In your left, a criminal asylum. So, both super great outcomes. Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. Yep. So, after that, Chantulli became deeply superstitious. Okay. And when her son Giuseppe told her in late 1939 that he was going to join the Italian army, okay, one of her only four surviving children, she turned to the one thing that she believed would keep him safe, which was human sacrifice. Oh, yeah. And it's not clear where Leonardo got this idea to sacrifice humans from in order to save her son from dying in World War II, but she went on to murder three women before she was caught.
0: Wow.
1: So the first victim was a local spinster by the name of Faustina Setti. So, Leonardo invited Seti to her home under the guise of setting her up with a husband in 1939. So, okay. she was playing Tinder Slush Hinge. <laughs> so, Leonardi Or a matchmaker? Or matchmaker. Matchmaker, <laughs> matchmaker, make me a match. Um, so, Leonarda instructed Seti to write letters to her family members telling them that she would be visiting the man abroad. And then, instead of playing matchmaker... Chinchuli drugged Seti with spiked wine and then murdered her with an axe. Okay. Yep. So instead of the six pieces we described Mm -hmm. earlier, she cut Seti into nine pieces and then gathered her blood into a basin. Ooh, interesting. So she threw the nine pieces into a pot,
0: added seven
1: kilos of caustic soda, which she had bought to make soap, stirred up the whole mixture until the pieces dissolved into a thick, dark mush, And then she emptied that into the septic tank.
0: Bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Do you want to guess what she did with the blood in the basin? I don't want (laughs) to. So she waited until it had coagulated. Then she dried it in the oven, ground it, and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate milk, and eggs, as well as a little bit of margarine. Kneaded it all together and then made a bunch
0: of crunchy tea cakes which she served to all the ladies who had come to visit. This sounds like the p- weird people that eat their own placentas. Except for worse, because this is other people and not <laughs> oh. like just a random oh. organ that gets generated during birth.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. So she served them to a bunch of people who came to visit, but she also ate some as well as her husband. Well, her husband did not know what he was eating. Who? Oh. Yep. Oh. And then she also, to top it all off, stole Seti's life savings, which Seti had brought to her as payment for setting her up. <laughs> so then fast forward a year on september 5th 1940 chinchuli killed francesca soavi she convinced soavi that she had organized a teaching job for her abroad okay that sounds great yep yeah. made her write letters to her friends detailing her trip and then as she had the study, fed her drug line killed her with an axe baked her into tea cakes and stole her money
0: I think I've heard this story on one of the podcasts. I wouldn't be surprised. I can't, like, it's it's starting to sound familiar. Yeah. It was either, and that's why we drank, or MFM. I think it might be, and that's why. We... Yeah, because I don't think it's MFM. Yeah, this sounds really familiar. I mean, it's, it's, I, I love the story, but I think. I don't know, it's, yeah. When I was re- researching yeah. this story, I was like,
1: somebody must have covered it. Because it's yeah. such an interesting story. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So her last victim okay. was Virginia Kachopo. Okay. And Cacciopo was a noted soprano who once sang at the famed La Scala Opera House in Milan. Okay. And Leonardo promised Cacciopo a job working with an impresario in Florence, which prompted Cacciopo to pay her visit on September 30th, 1940. So this was the same month that she killed uh, Francesca Soavi. Okay. So as with her previous two victims, Leonardo fed Cacciopo spiked wine and killed her with an axe. However, this time, instead of only baking her body into tea cakes and feeding them to her neighbors, Chinchuli
0: also melted her flesh down and turned it into soap, which she then gave to friends and family. Scrub a dub dub. Yep, yep. And you and somebody else creepily covering you in the tub.
1: <laughs> and the direct quote from Leonardo was the cakes too were better. That woman was really sweet. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, Leonardo thought she had committed the perfect murders, but unlike her first two victims, who had few concerned relatives, Cachopo actually had a very worried sister-in-law yeah. who didn't believe Cachopo's letters. And she had seen her entering Leonardo's home the night she had left. So Rookie almost, mistake. I know. If you're going to dismember somebody, you got to do the extra work, man. <laughs> PSA. <laughs> Just kidding. Don't dismember people. Don't kill them. Leonardo thought... So... The sister-in-law almost immediately reported her sister's disappearance okay. to the police, and they began to investigate Chinchuli. And at first, Chinchuli defended herself, but when the police started to shift the blame toward Giuseppe, her son that she had, you know, started doing this human sacrifice yeah. to protect, she finally broke down and admitted to everything. Gotcha. Her trial lasted only a few days, and she was found guilty of her crimes and given a 33-year sentence. So then on October fifteenth, nineteen seventy, at the age of seventy nine, Leonardo Tinchuli died of a brain hemorrhage while she was still in the asylum. Mm,
0: Okay,
1: fun fact: her body was returned to her family, but her murder weapons, including the pot that her victims were boiled in, were donated to the Criminology Museum in Rome, which we should definitely go visit someday. Yes, for sure. And to this day, museum visitors can see her collection of axes that she used to dismember her victims and appear inside the vat that she used to boil them.
0: We're visiting. Yeah. Once the world is opened up again. Yes. We're visiting. Yeah.
1: So oh. that was the uh, soap maker of Corregio. And for reference, it was, and that's why we drink, episode 61, A Human Lazy Susan <laughs> and the Bloody Brunch.
0: <laughs> I was like, why does this sound so familiar? <laughs> Once you did the tea cakes, I was like, oh, I know this from somewhere. Yeah. Oh. I also have a cr- simil- similarly crazy story. I found this and I was like, I have to do this. Yeah. My person actually has the nickname of the Granny Ripper. The Granny Ripper? The Granny Ripper. Oh. You ready? Yes.
1: So, so excited for this. we're
0: going to Russia for this one. Okay, so hop in on a plane from Italy
1: to Russia tomorrow.
0: And a time <laughs> so tomorrow, Samsonova, who was born April twenty fifth, nineteen forty seven, so she's now seventy three. Okay, is a Russian woman from Uzer, which I have no idea where that is. Uzer. She went to Moscow for college, and then after graduating, she moved to Saint Petersburg, where she married her husband Alexei Samsonov. In 1971, they moved into a newly built panel house at number four, Privetra. Dimitrov Street. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what I thought. They said number four for all of these, like number 10. And it was number four, and I almost wrote private. <laughs> but number four, Dimitrov Street. Okay. Not as cool. So this was 1971. In 2000, her husband disappeared. She appealed to the police, but the searches yelled, yielded nothing. Want womp. womp. So after he disappeared, she began renting out a room in her apartment. And now we're to jump to March 2015. Oh. So that was from 2000. So now we're March 2015. Okay. She met 79 year old Valentina Nikolavenya Ulanova, who also lived on Dimitrov Street, number 10 Dimitrov Street.
1: How come you're not giving me Russian accent?
0: Samsonova's, because <laughs> I can't, it's a bad apartment, was being renovated. So she started staying with Valentina. Samsonova started really liking living in this apartment and essentially refused to move out. And eventually, Ulanova asked Samsonova to move out. So this was, I think this was like mid-July. And then on July 26th or 27th, All of these stories were like from 2015 to 2019 and all were like a little bit different and probably translated from Russian. So I'm going to give you some vague dates and some vague timelines because I couldn't find a real thing. But I have several sources that have said multiple things. So I'm going to tell you the multiple (laughs) options. Um, So on July 26th or 27th, 2015, Ulanova's decapitated body with severed limbs was found wrapped in a bathroom curtain near a pond near number 10 Dimitrov Street. Okay. She was ID'd on the 27th as Ulanova. And then there's, I saw this a couple of ways. One was surveillance cameras saw Samsonova bringing out a series of black trash bags out of the house. Mm. Another one said that Samsonova was living in Ulanova's apartment at this point, right? So another one said that they knocked on Ulanova's apartment, was Samsonova opened, and inside they found traces of blood in the bathroom, fastenings from the torn off curtain left hanging up. As well as a hacksaw still covered in blood. Not suspicious. So not the most subtle no. yeah. of crime scenes. And so they brought in Samsonova. Apparently this was after there was a conflict over what cups to wash or washing cups of some sort. And this drove Samsonova to poison Ulanova. She got her pharmacist to call in an order for phenazepam, And on the 23rd, Third, sorry, yeah, for finazepan. So, like, mid-July, she snuck it into her food. Okay. And then she overdosed. And then on July 23rd, Samsonova found Ulanova's body, then dismembered it with two knives and a saw. And there's a question of if she was still alive when she was dismembered. And this is one of the points that I didn't get a great answer from from reading a handful of articles, and I'm still not quite sure. Yeah. There's a chance she was alive. First, the head was cut off. Then cut the body in half, and then using the knife, she sheared it into pieces. And she put these all into like a bunch of, yeah, just, and like put into a bunch of garbage bags and was like taking them out. And then CCTV caught her taking these garbage bags out to the trash, essentially. But the one biggest piece that she had was the body that she wrapped in the curtain and left out and somebody found. Yeah. Rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. So, a forensic psychiatric exam in November found her to be a danger to society and herself. <laughs> surprise. <laughs> and she underwent compulsory psychiatric treatment. Yep. She did confess to Ulanova's murder. And a saucepan was found, discarded, which they believed to have contained the cook head and lungs of Ulanova.
1: She cooked the head and the lungs?
0: They also found a diary in the apartment which detailed even more crazy things dating back 20 years. So this diary, again, 20 years. So husband disappeared in 2000. This was 2015. So this is going back to before husband was missing. Yeah. Quote, unquote. Was in fluent Russian, German, and English, but kind of interspersed. So it was like even more weird. And then among other things, it detailed a confession of a murder of one of her former tenants. I killed my tenant, Volodoya... Cut him to pieces in the bathroom with a knife Put the pieces of his body in plastic bags And threw them away in different parts Of Franzetsky district This 44 year old man That matches this story Was found in 2003 Headless, armless and legless in the street Whoa. So this was three years after Her husband disappeared Yeah. And then between accounts of multiple killings There were just mundane details Of her everyday life Including like, I drank some coffee today <laughs> poems songs and lyrics roses Just... are red violets are blue
1: i killed my tenant and next it is you <laughs> that, was <really> good. <laughs> that was good thanks
0: um i saw various numbers but she's being investigated for upwards of 14 other murders what she's admit confessed to apparently over 21 additional murders oh my god but the gosh. exact number is uncertain and that husband, yeah, they're pretty sure she killed. They, yeah. she killed him too. I thought too. that was going to be your conclusion. Was but like... they're not. This they're they're not definite about. What?
1: It. As soon as you mentioned dead husband, I was like, she killed him.
0: He was never found. That's the issue with a lot of this. Is like she got so good at dismembering that like I mean that literally like headless and armless and legless corpse that was found in the street in yeah. two thousand three. Yeah. they never connected back to her. Right. It's only this one because she was staying in these people's apartment yeah, that they yeah, found yeah. it. Yeah. Like it's. It's absolutely crazy and then apparently she was very calm in court and like she was saying things like I did it you should punish me but like in a very calm manner like she took the blame she confessed right. yeah. but she was just saying it in this very like yep that was me
1: huh.
0: it was apparently like just super creepy which is why they called her granny ripper Yeah, because she's this kind of like unassuming Russian grandma Yeah, who's just like has murdered multiple people including her uh... husband in tenants, like cool. she's because like she started renting out this room in two thousand, right? right? Yeah, and who knows how many tenants she's gone through? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if somebody just moved to that, town, I'm, like I'm, I'm just gonna sit with this like, <laughs> 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 Or, apparently, she like just used knives and hacked at them. Oh uh, yeah, my part. It was so, two knives and, and a, a saw. saw. <laughs> like yeah. Well, she became an expert, so she knew to disarticulate with knives. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So she's seventy-three now, which meant when she was caught, it was about five years ago, right? So she was sixty-eight. So she was forty-eight when she started this. Wow. But like, still, even if you're like sixty-five, like that's a lot of force to saw through bones. Like that's one strong Russian grandma.
1: Don't get in a fist fight with her.
0: Don't don't cross your Russian
1: grandma. Yeah, no, that's crazy. It's crazy that we both chose women who dismembered people mm-hmm. because dismemberments in homicide are rare. Yes, and then women who are dismembering are even rarer. Which was another thing I was thinking about because of you know how many bodies. Have we just not found that
0: are dismembered? That's true. How many women are out there that are killers have because just Because these not ones caught? were like, I think a lot of the dismemberments are like a one and done kind of thing, right? But these are the serial killers. Right. And the so. only reason they got caught is because they got a little bit sloppy. Yeah. But she
1: was killing people for, what'd you say, 20, 20 years? Possibly
0: 20 years. Like this diary dated back 20 years. Her oh. husband disappeared 15 years before when like, yeah. she was found. So yeah. who knows? That's great. Oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention is that the diary has details of her removing organs and cannibalism wasn't excluded. Uh, so the whole like boiling the head and the lungs, yeah. along with this diary that like hinted at cannibalism. Yes. Especially lungs, apparently she would cook and eat. Ew. Which I feel like that's one of the least, I mean, none of it's desirable. <laughs> but like.
1: But I know I agree. Like go for the muscle or liver. A like liver a was what immediately came to my mind. I guess it's Russia. Maybe the top just has a hint of vodka. And, and, that's fine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Try a shot of vodka with it anyway. <laughs> that's fine. that's, fine. that's true. That's <laughs> true.
1: A shot full of vodka helps the <laughs>
0: socials <media> go down.
1: <laughs> so Um So if you liked this and any of our other episodes. Uh, please remember to rate review and subscribe it's how
0: we get boosted up on the various podcasting platforms and other people learn about us you can visit our website at dead where we link to all of our sources in our episode guide on twitter we're at dead Man do on instagram we're at the dead tell Tale tales and our facebook page is dead Man do tell tales podcast and as always you can send us an email with questions comments concerns saying hi through our website or directly to TheDeadTailedTales at gmail.com. And our opening theme music is Introducing the Pre-Roll by Lee Rosevere, who you can find on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed. Yeah. Bye. Bye.